We're going to begin today in Zechariah chapter 7. We have been, I think, growing in our understanding of our great God through studying these minor prophets. The minor prophets were known in Jesus' day as the book of the twelve, or simply the twelve. Zechariah is the eleventh of twelve prophets that are in this section of scripture. They're called minor because their writings are shorter in length. And I've pointed out every week that I think this is the least familiar portion of the Bible. The minor prophets is probably the least familiar portion of the Bible, but we are the worst for it. The fact that we're unfamiliar with this portion of scripture means that we are less aware of God's strong justice We're less aware of his good promises. We're less aware of his self-giving love. We're less aware of his persevering faithfulness. These are themes that are strongly emphasized in this passage. When you read these 12 books as a whole, you should come away saying things like, Wow, I didn't realize how faithful God is. I didn't realize that you're never beyond hope if you follow God. There's always hope. God will fulfill every promise he's made. You come away with these strong impressions of confidence in God. Zechariah spoke to Jerusalem about 500 years after the time of David and Solomon when Israel was at its strongest. Zechariah spoke about 400 years after the kingdom had split into northern and southern Israel. He spoke even long after, more than a century after the northern kingdom was decimated and 70 years after the southern kingdom was decimated. Zechariah himself, it seems, he had actually returned to Jerusalem from Babylon, probably walking in a massive cohort led by his grandfather Iddo. And God chose to use Zechariah in Jerusalem, kind of like a political commentator, speaking publicly to the nation regarding their obligations. And Zechariah especially emphasized the need of these people to rebuild the temple because of what God was going to do for Jerusalem, what he was going to do through Jerusalem. This is where Zechariah fits in history. Now, last week, we looked at chapters 1 through 6, Zechariah 1 through 6, and you might remember there were eight visions, some of them quite unusual. He received these eight visions in a single night, and some of those details, though they're, they're somewhat strange, you put them all together, and Zechariah understood that God's unstoppable plan for Jerusalem involves establishing his Davidic king, who's also a priest. That Davidic king will, in a single day, reconcile many nations to God, and he will eventually judge those who refuse to submit themselves to him. If you put all of those eight visions together in, in one, Zechariah understands that there is a day of cleansing coming for God's people. It will happen through the branch that is a Davidic king who we're also told will be a priest. And he will offer himself, we don't know that till later, but he will offer himself for the people's cleansing in a single day, a reference to the crucifixion. And yet, 
There is judgment warned for anyone who will not submit themselves to him. The way I would title chapters 1 through 6 is to say there is total cleansing from impurity through the Davidic priest. The Davidic adjective that he is of David means he's royal. He is also a priest. There is going to be total cleansing from impurity. That's what Zechariah saw. And this is why Jerusalem in the plan of God is so important. God chose Jerusalem to be the location on earth where people could be reconciled to him. That reconciliation with the one true God was first foreshadowed in the temple that Zechariah is saying, rebuild it because of of what God's going to do here. But then Jesus himself offers the once-for-all sacrifice in a single day when he's crucified, and he becomes, we realize, the ultimate temple, the ultimate place where you can meet with God. If you will follow Jesus, if you will trust Jesus, if you'll submit to Jesus, you can be reconciled to God. He's the one the temple in Jerusalem was always foreshadowing. So last week we examined those first six chapters, and we went into detail I hope you don't mind it. These last two messages have been full of detail. We're going to do a little bit more today. Take note that it's tough, but it's going to be okay. All right, I'm preparing you for for some hard mental work. Last week, we we kind of uh, went from the helicopter view down into the forest, and we started looking through sections of trees. We went through those, those eight visions. Today, we're going we're gonna to step back up a little bit over the trees, and we are going to look at the forests. We're going to look at the, the territory from a, a little bit of a broader perspective. Now, my plan is to lead us on a brief tour of Zechariah 7 through 14, the last eight chapters, or the last about half, a little over half of the book. As we walk through these, my goal is not as much like last week to examine individual trees, but is to get the big picture, to see the forest as it were. Now this could seem a little academic, and in one sense it is. We're doing hard mental work of looking at paragraphs or statements and and summarizing them and putting them all together. But when we are dealing with God's word, It is never merely academic. It is never merely a thought exercise. Every one of us should approach today's study saying, God, I expect to encounter you. I expect to understand you better. I expect to understand you and your plan for this world and how I fit into it. We should actually expect to stand in awe of God. So if you can imagine all of us kind of sitting in in a helicopter flying over some forests, and I'm pointing out here's that section, and here's that section, and here's what's going on over there. There are going to be a couple times today, according to my plan, if the Lord wills, eight times, where I'm going to stop, and I'm going to say, let's just take a minute to marvel. Let's consider who God is, what he's saying to us here, and how it should affect our lives. So we're going to do a, a, a flyover, a tour, and I'm going to stop several times to, to marvel at God. So let's begin this tour, right? Zechariah's book divides into two main parts, Zechariah 1 to 8, chapters 1 to 8, and then 9 to 14. 
And if you look, last week we only studied 1 to 6. So we still haven't studied that last bit of the first half of Zechariah. That's chapters 7 to 8. That's where we begin today. And in Zechariah 7, if you look at verses 2 and 3, we're told that a few men come from the city of Bethel to the city of Jerusalem to ask the priests whether they should keep observing a national day of mourning. That national day of mourning was a day that for the last 70 years had remembered the destruction of the city when the Babylonians came in and decimated it. And they say, should we keep mourning annually? And God, in verse 5, basically starts by asking, why do you observe holidays at all? Is it to make yourselves feel better? Or is it really to draw closer to me? What he's basically saying is, I'm not really interested in traditions. I'm I'm interested in a transformed life, a life that centers on loving me and loving others. So you see in verses 9 and 10, the Lord describes what true religion looks like. It's not just mourning on an annual basis when that holiday comes around. Transformation looks, verse 9, like render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to each other. Don't oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, and let none of you devise evil against each other in your hearts. Now both Jesus and his half-brother James are going to echo these words from Zechariah describing true religion. God's not interested in traditions. He's interested in a transformed heart. Okay? We're going to stop and marvel. Are you aware... That the God who made you isn't interested primarily in your traditional observances. He's not interested in you doing the same thing over and over every year. I'm not saying there's necessarily anything bad with holiday rituals. Okay? But there's more to life than the same old, same old. There's more to life than going through the motions. You exist to love God and love others. Are you a person who evidences in your life transformation because you're marked by what he describes here in chapter 7 as honesty, faithfulness to your word, a genuine concern for others. That's what God's interested in. According to chapter 7, the Lord wants transformed lives, not merely tradition. And then in chapter 8, He's going to describe how the transformation is going to come about. The Lord speaks in chapter 8, again through Zechariah, and he promises to bless Jerusalem so much that they won't be asking questions about mourning again. They're going to turn, he's going to turn their experience from mourning into celebration, to feasting. And at the heart of this, in verse 2, chapter 8, verse 2, the Lord says, I'm jealous for Jerusalem with a great jealousy. He's talking like a husband who's got a healthy jealousy for his wife. I myself, verse 3, will return to Jerusalem. He says, I myself will dwell there. Not only will God dwell in Jerusalem, but verse 8, look at chapter 8, verse 8. He says, I'm going to bring all my people back there too, and they're going to dwell there. And end of verse 8, they will be my people and I will be their God. So God's going to live in Jerusalem and all his people are going to live in Jerusalem. Wow. According to verse 4, look back at that, the streets will be filled with old people who are walking happily 
And verse 5 says, little boys and girls will be playing there. Look down at verses 22 and 23. The Lord says there in Jerusalem, many people will be there. People from nations of every language. They're going to submit themselves to Israel's God and they're going to enjoy these blessings too. God says the blessings that are coming to this city of Jerusalem are going to far outshadow all the trials you've been through. Hmm. So in verse 6, God tells these people who are living in ruins and trying to rebuild, he says, verse 6, to you it might seem marvelous for all this to happen. You might highlight marvelous and draw a little line out or above it, put impossible. That's what it means. That's too wonderful to believe. It might seem marvelous to you for this to happen, but is it marvelous, God asks, for me? Is it impossible for me? And that is a truth, again, that Jesus quotes in the New Testament when he says, with people it might be impossible, but nothing will be impossible with God. He's quoting Zechariah. So let's stop and marvel. Do you believe that there's anything right now that God can't do? Do you think it's impossible for God to change the heart of your husband or your wife? For God to change the heart of your child or of your parent? Do you think it's impossible for God to save you? For him to forgive you and really change your life? Nothing is impossible with God. It may seem too marvelous for you, but never stop trusting in God. Never stop praying to him. Never stop hoping in him because with God, nothing's impossible. Nothing's too marvelous. According to chapter 8 then, the Lord is going to forever dwell with his transformed people. And these people will include people from nations of every language. So I'd put together this section, Zechariah 7 and 8, something like this. The Lord himself will live forever in Jerusalem with his transformed people of many nations. Something like that. If you're looking for a title for it, I might title it Total Transformation of, of Life through the Lord of Hosts. In these two chapters, the Lord refers to himself as the Lord of Hosts at least 23 times. Total transformation of life through the Lord of Hosts. And we need to stop and marvel again. Let's just think about the territory we've looked at. It is critical that we understand that these promises that God made through Zechariah are fulfilled throughout the entire messianic age. Some in Jesus' first coming, more in Jesus' church, more in Jesus' second coming, more in the ultimate creation that Jesus remakes. These promises of Zechariah 7 and 8, they begin to be fulfilled when Jesus, the Lord himself, enters Jerusalem. They begin. The faucet opens, as it were. They continue to be fulfilled today in part as the church expands, 
as Gentiles experience the blessings of the new covenant, we can truly say here in Madison, Ohio, 2,000 years later, if we've approached God through his temple, through the Lord Jesus, we can say, I am yours and you are mine. We are experiencing the blessings that Zechariah was forecasting in our strange English language. People from nations of every language are experiencing we are God's people and he is our God all through what took place through Jesus in Jerusalem when he died for our sins. And I should also point out that every Sunday, something of the experience of verses 4 and 5 in chapter 8, something of that experience is lived out here. There are older people, some with canes, some with walkers, some with limps, who are happily talking to each other, maybe crying together, maybe hugging each other, maybe praying together. They're together. And while they're talking, standing up, maybe feeble. There's little kids whipping around here, playing. Little boys and girls, and sometimes they need to slow down. Little boys and girls are playing. Sometimes, the playing, a couple of weeks ago, it cracked me up. Kids were playing hide and seek. It was like one o'clock on Sunday afternoon. And uh, one little kid comes down and talks to their parent. And they're like, we're playing hide and seek and I think I won. And we found out that the other families left. (laughs) So they thought that they had found this incredible hiding spot, only to find out that the game had ended and they didn't realize that everyone had left. We've got old people experiencing the joy of fellowship together while young little boys and girls are playing. It's a little fulfillment. It's a partial fulfillment of what Zechariah is talking about. What's bringing those people together? It's what happened in Jerusalem. It's a little fulfillment of it. But these promises truly await ultimate fulfillment. Not only in that little single city of Jerusalem, that's 50 square miles or so right in the middle of Israel, but in the entire creation that Jerusalem's government takes over. See, God's intention for Jerusalem throughout all of history was to undo what happened in Eden. Eden was supposed to be the place where God's government reigned. And then from Eden, it expanded out over the entire creation. But humans were involved in anarchy. They said, God, we don't want you ruling over us. So God started promising Abraham that he's going to restore blessings to his creation and we start learning that it's going to take place at Mount Moriah where Abraham almost offered his son. And we find out that it's right there where Solomon is going to build the temple where where people, where humans can meet with God. And that temple, it's actually painted on the walls like Eden. And the blessings aren't going to stop in Jerusalem. God's intention for Jerusalem is just like Eden. The blessings that, that happen through what Jesus did in Jerusalem are going to take over on this planet. All of creation is going to experience the restored blessings of God. This is what's going on. It's incredible. This is what's going on. 
When, when Zechariah promises that all this is going to happen to Jerusalem, it's because Jerusalem is, is central to the plan of God being accomplished throughout all of earth. Now, that's the first half of Zechariah, right? Total cleansing, total transformation. Now we launch into the second half. And again, we're going to stay up here. We're not going to dig into too many details, but we're going to look down at the forest. The, the two parts of the second half of, of Zechariah are oracles or sermons. Some people refer to them kind of like uh, as, as Zechariah's greatest hits. You'll see chapter 9, verse 1, it's the oracle that was given to Zechariah. And chapter 12, verse 1, it's the oracle that was given to Zechariah. These are two sermons that are probably sermons that captured some of the greatest messages that Zechariah ever spoke from the Lord. And these are unspeakably great. They're unspeakably great. Chapter 9 opens, if you're looking at your text, it opens with the Lord's announcement that all of Israel's surrounding territories are going to be conquered by Israel. Now, some of these territories, like Damascus and Tyre, they had been under Israel's rule when it was at its height, under David. But some of these territories, like Philistia, hadn't. So in the future, Zechariah is promising that Israel's king is actually going to rule more than he ever has at any point in history. And then Zechariah announces when it's going to happen. Look at verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9. It's going to happen when your king comes to you. And the king, who's going to be so victorious, is going to be ironically afflicted as well. He's going to bring salvation, but he's also going to be humble and ride a donkey, like David did at one point. But Israel's king, even more than David, will be afflicted. He'll be afflicted more than David was, and he'll be victorious more than David was. Verse 16, look at the summary. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people, for they're like jewels in a crown. And again, I just want to stop. We've just done a quick tour of chapter 9. And I want to marvel. Marvel. Through Zechariah, God repeatedly communicates how deeply he values his people. You might remember in chapter 2, verse 8, he described his people as the apple of his eye. It's the pupil. Did you know that your eye is one of the most protected places of your body? You've got bones in the eye socket that stick out. Then you've got the eyelid that has lashes on it that sense anything coming in and instinctively protect the eye. That's how God describes you, his people. We saw it in this chapter. It was also in, or in, this, uh, in this session. Also in chapter one where God says, I'm jealous for you with a great jealousy. In chapter 1, he said, I'm exceedingly jealous for you. He's describing the kind of healthy jealousy that, that grows out of lifelong exclusive commitment. I've committed myself to you, so I'm jealous for you. I love you. And here in chapter 9, verse 16, God says his people will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. If you've taken refuge in Jesus... Do you know that God doesn't just tolerate you? Some of you need to hear this this morning. God doesn't just tolerate you. He delights in you. 
like a girl looking at her engagement ring as it sparkles. Delight? He values you. You're precious to him. He loves you. God communicates this to us through Zechariah. Wow, marvel. In chapter 10, Zechariah explains that the Lord is going to get rid of all of Israel's current selfish leaders. And that denunciation continues into chapter 11. Look at the first two verses, or three verses of chapter 11. God tells the current shepherds who are governing Israel to wail because judgment's coming on them. And then in the rest of the chapter, God tells Zechariah to do something really unusual. Look at verse 4. God says basically, act like you're me, like you're Israel's shepherd. Act it out. Do a, do a, drama, a dramatic production. You're me throughout Israel's history. He actually says, shepherd these people who will eventually be decimated. So he's going back, looking back at Israel's history, and he's saying, Zechariah, act it out. You're me. You're going to shepherd these people who are eventually going to be decimated by Assyria and Babylon. So verse 7, Zechariah acts it out. He takes two shepherd staffs. One he names favor, and the other he names union. And then each of them, first in verse 10 and second in verse 14, each of them he breaks. He snaps the shepherd's staff into two, showing that union is broken. In other words, the united kingdom will be totally divided. Their power will be lost. And then he snaps favor in two, saying, the day of God's favor is over. You're going to face God's judgment for your idolatry. And as he's acting out this this prophecy, this word from the Lord, verse 12, Zechariah, who's acting as God the shepherd, basically says, okay, Israel, if you want out of my shepherding authority, then pay me for all my work and make me leave. What are you going to pay me? How much am I worth to you? And Zechariah, who's representing God, gets paid 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver, according to Exodus 21, is the price of a slave. So, what's being acted out is that God shepherds his people who are headed for judgment and they end up treating him like a worthless slave. That's how they treat God. Remarkably, 30 pieces of silver is the exact amount of money that 500 years later, Judas was paid to betray Jesus so that the Jews could get rid of him like a worthless criminal. So, according to chapters 10 and 11, God's going to rid his people of their enemies even though they treated him like a worthless slave and tried to get rid of him. I'd state the entire third section of Zechariah, chapters 9 through 11, like this. Though Israel tried to get rid of God as their shepherd, he graciously endured affliction to rescue them from all their enemies. 
You're putting together lots of pieces, but it starts taking shape, looking like even though Israel tried to get rid of God as their shepherd, he graciously endured affliction to rescue them from all their enemies. If I gave this third section a title, I would title it Total Rescue from Enemies Through the Afflicted Shepherd. We need to stop and marvel, don't we? Some of you are already doing it. I can see your heads shaking. What a God we have. I also want to stop and marvel at just the, the prophecies themselves. Do you know that one of the ways that we can still trust that all that God has promised will be fulfilled is because much of it already has been? There's a new book that I really want to read. I was introduced to it maybe two weeks ago. It's by Warner Wallace called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. Warner Wallace is a cold case homicide detective. He's writing this book saying here are numerous reasons that we can trust the scripture's testimony about Jesus. He describes the prophets, like Zechariah, as reliable informants. Reliable informants. Because Zechariah has spoken reliably about so many things that we can verify right now. He promised the temple's rebuilding. It would be rebuilt within just a few years. He promised little details like the Greeks would take over the Persians and then the Greeks themselves would be decimated. That's already happened. Or he promised that Israel's king would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Or that Israel would treat God as a worthless slave trying to get rid of him at the price of 30 pieces of silver. All those things have already happened. That means Zechariah is a reliable informant. That means everything Zechariah has said, there's strong reason to believe it's all going to happen just like he said it. He's a reliable informant. The last section of Zechariah is chapters 12 through 14. Begins in chapter 12, verse 1, with the Lord emphasizing his power as creator. Look at that verse. Verse 1, I'm the one who stretched out the heavens. I laid the foundations of the earth. I breathed life into man. In this climactic final section of Zechariah, the creator is promising to remake creation. He promises to begin by judging anyone who hurts his people. Look at verse 9. It summarizes the first portion of chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 9, On that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that are against Jerusalem. And in verse 10, he says, Around this time that I set out to destroy my people's enemies, I'm going to pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him greatly. It'll be like national mourning for a king. So, chapter 12, the creator is going to judge his people's enemies, and he's going to give them hearts to mourn over the fact that they rejected him. Now, when Jerusalem mourns, look at chapter 13, verse 1. A fountain's going to be opened to wash away their sin and impurity. But this is only going to come about through a king who's pierced. 
So the Lord says in verse 7, kind of remembering it, kind of speaking it, sword, awake against my shepherd, against the man who's my associate. His chosen king is also close to him. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And it's only after that, verse 9, this is chapter 13, verse 9, that people will call on the name of the Lord and be reconciled with their maker. When they repent, God is going to cleanse them and be reconciled to them. And somehow it's going to be through a shepherd who's been pierced. Whoa. Got to stop and marvel. 500 years before Jesus comes is when Zechariah is speaking. And Zechariah announces that the Lord himself, somehow, also a man from David's family, who's called the Lord, who's called the Lord's king, but is the Lord, somehow, the Lord is going to enter Jerusalem, riding a donkey, being rejected by people, being pierced, but somehow not dying. He'd offer cleansing for sin in a single day, and he'd be paid 30 pieces of silver to be gotten rid of. All so that when you and I repent, we could be cleansed. So that today we can sing... There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. It doesn't matter how bad we are. That's why Cooper went on to write, The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. That fountain is open for cleansing. God gave his son so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be changed. Marvel at it. And I want you to marvel even further, even further. What Zechariah is describing here is people who had pierced their Messiah, and around the time of final judgment, there is massive, mournful repentance that characterizes Jerusalem. Hmm. I think, you don't have to agree with me, but I think this is what Paul explains in Romans 11, 25 through 27, when he says the natural olive branch is going to have a branch broken off and wild branches are going to be grafted in. But there's coming a day when God is going to take that natural branch and graft it back in as well. The way I understand this, along with many others, is that there's coming a day when, in mass, God is going to do for Jews what is mostly a Gentile thing today. Jews are going to mourn over the king they pierced, and they're going to take refuge in him and find cleansing in him. They're going to be reconciled with God, all to magnify his mercy. That's how Paul describes it in Romans 11. We long for that day. We pray for that day. And until that day, we should oppose all anti-Semitism. And until that day, we should 
pray and invest in the evangelization of Jewish people. We should pray for churches in the Middle East. Jewish evangelism continues to be one of the hardest works today. We need to pray and invest in it with this kind of hope. Chapter 14 is the final climactic chapter in which Zechariah predicts a future military conflict at Jerusalem, after which God himself, look at verse 4, will stand on the Mount of Olives. The Lord will stand on the Mount of Olives. Verse 5 says he's going to be accompanied by all his holy ones. And then according to verses 6 and following, he's going to remake creation. No more night. There will be no more curse. Verse 9 is climactic. The great I am, the Lord, will become king over all the earth. So Zechariah ends very climactically in verse 20. You might say, this is a strange climax. I've got to explain it. Verse 20, the horse bells and the pots and the pans. They're all going to be inscribed with the words, holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. It's like he ends saying, every little thing on the planet in those days is going to have a label. And the label's not going to say made in China. (laughs) Everything is going to have a little label somewhere on it, and it's going to say, this thing's devoted to the Lord. Every shoelace, every ballpoint pen, every fork, every spoon, every two-by-four, every roof tile, every light bulb, every tractor. Everything in all creation is going to have a little label saying, this is devoted to the Lord. Every facet of every person's life will be devoted to the Lord. That will truly be a restored creation. So, The Lord will eventually save all his repentant people from sin, from every enemy, and from the curse. And he will rule forever as king over a recreated planet. This is where Zechariah ends in chapters 12, 13, and 14. The Lord will eventually save all those who mourn tears of repentance, saying, I caused the piercing of your king. And they will be cleansed from their sin. He will rid them of their enemies. He will eventually rid all of creation of the curse. And he will rule himself forever as king over a recreated planet. Wow, what a climactic ending. If I would give this section a title, I'd say, there's the total remaking of creation through the pierced Lord. The total remaking of creation through the pierced Lord. Now, you just step back and say, wow, what a message. The greatest hits, truly. What a hope. Wow. Now, if you were to put it all together, stepping back now and looking at all of the territory of Zechariah, it looks something like this. Through Zechariah, God promises his people total cleansing from sin, chapters 1 through 6. Total transformation of life from the inside out, 
chapters 7 and 8. Total rescue from their enemies, chapters 9 through 11. And a total remaking of creation, chapters 12 to 14. You say, how is it going to happen? Zechariah identifies him. It's all through Israel's king and Lord, Jesus. He's identified as the Davidic priest, the branch from David's line in the first section. He's identified as the Lord of hosts in the second. He's identified as the shepherd who's going to be humble and afflicted and yet victorious in the third section. And he is the Lord when his people repent, will have been pierced by them. The pierced Lord. All of this is going to happen through Jesus. So I end on another note of marvel. All of human history is headed toward this goal. It's all headed toward this destination. The great I am, the one true God, will rule as king over the whole earth. That's the way Zechariah ends. And the only people who will not experience the king's judgment are those who, as the third verse of the first chapter put it, those who return to the Lord. Those who mourn over the reality that it was my rebellion that caused him to be pierced. If you want to stand reconciled to this king, then you need to return to him. You need to mourn over your sin. You need to call out on Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. If you haven't yet, I urge you to do it now. And if you have, then I ask. I'm asking Christians. I'm asking myself. If all of history is moving toward everything under the sun being labeled devoted to the Lord... How devoted should you and I be to the Lord today? How devoted should every aspect of our lives be devoted to him? God, I want my marriage to be devoted to you. I want the way I raise my kids to be devoted to you. I want this next conversation I'm going to have to reflect you. God, I want my sleep and my downtime to be devoted to you. I want every hour I spend working to be devoted to you. I want the way I spend my money to be devoted to you. All of history is moving toward devotion to the Lord. Let's get in line with it. Father, I pray that you would encourage us and shape our lives with this powerful revelation you gave of yourself through Zechariah. Jesus, be glorified. All our hopes in you. Amen.